Well, uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and a very warm welcome to the session this evening. I'm very delighted that we are in the school. Sorry, my name is George Gaskell. I'm a pro-director here. Uh, delighted that we're linking up with Imperial College on this second night of the Literary Festival, which runs until Saturday, so do keep abreast of other events. Now, this year's festival is exploring the theme branching out, partly in celebration of the fifth anniversary of the festival, and normally this is uh, marked by a piece of wood for some reason, but also as a homage to uh, Diderot. Diderot, in, the, in his 300th anniversary of the year of his birth, who pioneered the branches of knowledge and whose ashes will be placed in the Pantheon in Paris, or so they claim, uh, to celebrate this. Now, as usual in the Literary Festival, we are exploring the interaction between the arts and the social sciences with a particular focus on narratives, innovation, the changing world, and uniting branches of knowledge. Uh, there are still tickets available for many events, so uh, do visit the LSE website. Now, this evening's session... Uh, we are exploring what happens when we tell stories about science. In the chair is Dr. Nick Russell, who will introduce our distinguished panellists. Uh, a particular <coughs> welcome return to Afric Campbell, who joined us last year for a very interesting session on money, money in literature. Let me introduce Nick Russell, and he will then introduce the panelists. Nick has a varied career. He was a science teacher, freelance journalist, and developed vocational science curriculum. He was head of Department of Humanities at Imperial College before he retired, and he's now emeritus reader in science communication at Imperial. So we look forward to a very stimulating and... Um, Exciting evening. Thank you, George. Thank you very much. Um, yes, uh, we are for the Dark Castle in South Kensington, or most of us are for the Dark Castle in South Kensington. We've got one real human being on the panel, and I'll, I'll come to him last. Um, and you'll also notice, if you can count, that we're one short, because the schedule said there were going to be six of us. Unfortunately, Armand Roy uh, is not able to be with us for family reasons. He sends his apologies, but uh, he can't <coughs> attend. And in fact, we're having to do a substitute at the LSE end because uh, Professor Tim Besley can't be here either for family reasons, but we have got a substitute and I'll talk about him in a minute. Um, Afric Campbell, who's sitting on my right here, um, as George said, was once uh, an investment banker, <coughs> I may not have said, I can't remember that. Uh, she's now a novelist, and the last novel she wrote, I think, was called On the Floor, and got a 2012 Orange Prize long list. Um, now, at Imperial, she teaches creative writing uh, because some of our students are actually interested in things other than the laboratories and the computers, and they do actually come along and do things like creative writing, and she works on that for us. I should also say, too, that she was the main driving force behind this session. Um, the title, Altered States, which I think is a very good one, is hers, and uh, she's put this all together, and so if it goes brilliantly, she's responsible. And if it doesn't? Oh, I'm not responsible. Then our, next to me on the other side of me is Greg uh, Arthur, um, who also teaches at Imperial. He teaches uh, a combination of things, philosophy, politics, and business ethics. 
And again, it's about our students, despite the fact they are apparently um, nerdy, they do like to know about the real world outside, and certainly philosophy is a matter of great interest to a large number of our undergraduates. And so Greg's philosophy classes are bulging at the seams in, in every sense of the word. Um, and then beyond um, Greg sits Roger Nebo, and you know, he's a professor of surgical education. What else could he be but a surgeon? Um, and he is. Uh, and he's had a distinguished career at Imperial, innovating in uh, surgical education, but he's now had an exciting new break in his career, and he's going to spend the next two years as a welcome public engagement fellow, um, and he'll talk a little bit more about that and the kind of things he does under that heading uh, when he comes to give it a chat a bit later. And then, last but not least, the real human being, uh, who is Richard Bronk, who is uh, a visiting research fellow here, um, he's also one of the people behind the organisation of this whole festival, so he's quite an important chap. Uh, he has a book out which is called The Romantic Economist, which sounds to me like a paradox, but I think it's a very good title. Um, he might say something about it, I don't know. He started off as a philosopher, then he became uh, a man working in the city, and he came to LSC to teach um, political economy, and a couple of years ago he obviously decided to become pretty well a full-time writer. So... That's his background, and uh, he's a, 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 your local resident, your, your man of the people, as it were. Um, okay, uh, what I'm going to do, uh, what we're all going to do, is we're all going to tell a, a short story. Well, I hope it's going to be reasonably short. If my colleagues are not particularly short, I shall kick them. And the idea is that these stories may raise some <coughs> questions, some issues about um, how... Uh, <coughs> Science broadly defined, we include mathematics, including the social sciences, the physical sciences, and biological sciences. <coughs> These things are self perpetuating careers with their own internal justifications and their own seek- seeking after knowledge for their own sake. But of course, that's while the internal people that's the, think that's the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise of everybody else is that these things should come out into the world, influence policy, uh, influence this, that, and the other. They raise a whole series of important issues when they escape out into the real world. And the idea is that all of us will tell a little story about science or maths or social science escaping into the real world. Um, And then we hope that will raise issues about whether or not, when it does escape, its state is altered, whether it's the same stuff when it gets outside as it was the stuff on the inside. And telling stories about is obviously one of the ways in which it gets out. And so certainly... uh, two or three of us will be thinking mainly about the stories that you tell about science. In other cases, there'll be uh, science escaping into the, into the wider community and what happens to it there. Well, Armand can't be with us, uh, and therefore what I'm going to do is to, as it were, not tell his story, because I can't tell his story, because he was going to talk about the documentaries that he made and his experience of them. I don't make documentaries, so I can't do that. But what I thought I would do is take a piece of television, and I think try and develop the sort of theme that he was going to develop about um, telling stories on television about science. And then I'll pass over to my various colleagues, and they will tell stories, and hopefully by the end um, there will be some interesting questions, perhaps some cross-relations, and then we can ask you to tell us what the answers are, because um, we don't know what they are. Okay, so I'll start off, in a sense, by being Armand Leroy but I'm going to tell a different story, and I'm afraid I'm going to read it because I've knocked this together in the last um, afternoon, so bear with me, please, if I read it to you. Um, 
And I'm going to talk about uh, a now rather ancient television drama documentary, one of the first important ones, called Life Story, which was made in 1987. So some of the elder members of the audience may remember that. Most of the younger ones won't. But it has been frequently repeated because it is a classic of its sort. And it was a story, an attempt to tell the story of the discovery of the structure of DNA by um, Jim Watson and Francis Crick. Uh, it was based on Jim Watson's memoir of his act of discovery. So the, the film was made in 1987. Uh, Watson wrote his memoir about his role in the business in 1968, and the original work was done in 1952-53. The classic paper announcing the discovery of the structure of DNA appeared in Nature in 1953. And this drama doc had a pretty starry cast. It had Jeff Goldblum as Jim Watson, and he'd just spent some time being the fly in a, a dramatic piece of science fiction. So the fly got to play Jim Watson in this drama. Tim Bigot Smith played Francis Crick. Juliet Stevenson was a very convincing Rosalind Franklin, and Alan Howard was Maurice Wilkins. The controversy, for those who don't remember about it or have not heard about it, is that um, Watson and Crick essentially stole some data from Franklin and Wilkins and got to the solution first. And it's a sort of... Watson builds that element up in his story of the discovery. So let's just say a few things about the life story and the, the problems of how it represents science. <clears throat> Television drama and documentaries succeed when they tell good stories with strong visual elements. There must be a strong narrative with good pictures. The story demands characters, ideally heroes and villains interacting with each other in a dramatic plot involving excitement and adventure and sometimes moral resolution. And in the case of a single television programme, you've got 60 minutes or 90 minutes if you're really lucky to tell this story. Now those storytelling conventions are pretty much the antithesis of science. Now science depends on a high level of pre-existing knowledge in a specific field, a great deal of hard practical and intellectual graft over long periods of time, generally a great deal of boring repetition of visually tedious experiments, the interpretation of instrumental data that be nothing to lay observers, and much collaborative teamwork, both with living colleagues, with dead or retired predecessors who discovered most of the background information you depend on. The one thing that can leaven this process and makes it more interesting to outsiders than any other technical profession is what we call eureka moments, the points where a great deal of previously puzzling information can suddenly be made to fit together. And by no means all science involves such moments, but they're documented often enough for us to be sure they do really happen. But even the most successful scientific careers don't involve many of them. But a simplified version of such a eureka moment makes a very strong story focus, and the narrative temptation to home in on it is almost irresistible. Such a moment is the key dramatic point in the film Life Story where we see Jim Watson, Jeff Goldblum, cutting out drawings of the molecular shapes of the four nucleotide base pairs that form the backbone complementary pairing of DNA. And he plays around with the four, the adenine, the thymine, the cytosine, the guanine, fiddles around with it for a long five minutes, and then, hey presto, they fit together. The A fits with the T, the G fits with the C. And there, the eureka moment he has the basis of how one molecule could copy the other by being a complementary set of base pairs. And suddenly they solve the problem and the film ends about ten minutes later. Um, now we know an event like that did happen, 
uh, or at least it did if Watson's own memoir of events on which the film is based is to be believed. But Watson's own account is already cast as a dramatic story rather than a, dramatic, than a dispassionate account of events. His account has been tacked on other, con, in other contexts. For instance, the slighting of Rosalind Franklin is the most famous incident which people discuss about this book. And Francis Crick thought the original book should have been called Lucky Jim. <laughs> um, Watson casts himself as a naive, a bumbling about having insight for romantic moments, like the one with the scissors in the paper in the library. Now, he certainly was a naive in terms of X-ray crystallography, the technique that really cracked the molecular structure. But he was not a stumbling amateur when it, where it really mattered in thinking about the properties that genes must have. The only thing the uninformed reader of the double helix learns about Jim's life before the DNA work is that he was a keen bird watcher. He thus strengthens his drama, he thus strengthens the drama of his eureka moments by failing to tell readers that he'd already done work at the cutting edge of genetic research on the virus particles that parasitize bacteria, things called bacteriophages. But in the book, Watson deliberately chose to focus on one or two eureka moments, and the filmmakers picked up on one such as an obviously dramatic moment. But was it really as important in the actual DNA discovery as the book and film suggest? And does it really matter anyway in the context of a film about the process rather than the process itself? Okay, that's my little story about Eureka Moments. I'm sure Armand would have done something better. Um, and I'm now going to pass over to, I think we're going to go to... No, we're not. We're going to go to Greg. I beg your pardon. Yes, I miss, in being two people, I've mislaid my notes about sequences. So I'm going to back, go back to the chairman again. Uh, so the next man up is indeed Greg. Uh, well, one of the um, subjects I teach at Imperial is research ethics. Um, and many of the postgrads that come to me, they come to me with this rather sort of idealised conception of science um, and it's very common in the public mind that the idea of science is this completely objective study, this completely uh, factual approach to things and the lab is this sort of realm of facts um, somehow separated from all the messy political moral stuff that we deal with every day um, and I'd sort of tend to try and disabuse them of this and try and show them that actually the lab is very much a part of the world. It's very much enmeshed with all the different moral obligations and problems that we deal with. Uh, and this can lead to all sorts of pressures on people to commit scientific fraud. Um, now, one of the pressures that scientists are under sometimes is public pressure through public expectation. Um, and so I thought what I'd tell is a story that's uh, very relevant at the moment because of the expectations that have been uh, put upon various scientists in the area of forensic science. Um, you'll all be aware of CSI and various, um, various drama, uh, police dramas that, that paint the forensic science as this ultimate fact. It's always the killer blow. You know, they can always find some tiny little fibre or some tiny little thing that just actually clinches the case and, and that's it. Um, and this is supposed to be the forensic lab is once again this sort of perfect arena. Well, what I'm going to tell you is the story of Annie Dukin. Now, Annie Dukin is, at the moment, she is 35. Uh, she is a chemist, or she was a chemist, um, as a young girl, she was very ambitious at school, very competitive, uh, very hard worker. 
Uh, she did very well in chemistry. She got a place at the University of uh, Massachusetts in Boston and graduated with uh, a BA in biochemistry. Um, about 2003, she got a job with the Boston State Crime Lab, testing samples. Now, she was a very hard worker, and she was extremely productive. Uh, I'll give you some figures. She, in her first year, she tested 9,239 samples, which apparently is three times the average of all the other chemists there. Uh, she was promoted at the end of the first year for her productivity. Uh, in the second year, she tested 11,232 samples, which is four times the average. Um, now, obviously, she was extremely valuable to the lab because they were incredibly underfunded. They had this huge caseload that they couldn't get through, so her super supervisors thought she was wonderful. And um, so she was extremely well thought of, extremely highly sought after. Um, also, the various prosecutors and district attorneys... Uh, who were running cases. They were sending samples to her, and she'd turn them around very quickly in two weeks, which is half the time that everyone else did, and she'd usually turn up positive results. And so she developed very close relationships against protocol with a number of these prosecutors and district attorneys. Uh, in 2007, uh, a number of her colleagues started to get a bit suspicious of her high productivity because, as one of them said, they never saw her with her head in a telescope and they never saw her looking at scales. She didn't seem to do much. She seemed to do an awful lot of paperwork. So they reported her to a supervisor, and her supervisor said, well, basically, look, leave her alone. Um, it's not my job to discipline her. You'll have to go above me. Um, and so nothing was done. Um, in 2009, however, there was a Supreme Court ruling that said that any forensic evidence, the chemist had to be present in court and testify so that the, uh, the defence could cross-examine them over the forensic evidence. Now, this obviously slowed down uh, Annie. She, it slowed down everybody because you have to spend time in court instead of at the lab. Now, for all the other chemists in the, uh, in the lab, it cut them from sort of 400 down to about 200 a month they were doing, but she was still pumping out 800 tests a month. Um, eventually, there was a bit more suspicion. In 2010, she, her work was audited and her supervisors audited her, but they only audited her paperwork, and they found that it was all perfectly in order, and they didn't retest any of her samples. Um, but then in 2011, her supervisor caught her um, padding her CV, and she'd put on her CV that she now had um, an MA, uh, a master's in biochemistry, and she used to tell people uh, that she had a doctorate from Harvard. Uh, and then she was caught forging some initials on a document and removing some samples from an evidence cabinet. And there was a, uh, 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 an internal probe. As part of this, the police were called in in 2012. And in interviews, she confessed. And she confessed to a number of different crimes, one of which was dry labbing. Dry labbing is where you look at the samples, uh, you don't actually test them, you look at them and you say, well, that looks okay, that's cocaine, that'll do. Uh, it's white, it's powdery, that's cocaine, sign that one off. Um, and she'd get batches of 25 samples, she'd test four or five of them, and if they come up positive, she'd put them all down as positive. Um, when certain prosecutors put samples in that needed to be positive, if they weren't positive, she would contaminate them with, with cocaine that she knew. Uh, was cocaine. 
Um, when samples that she tested positive were, went away and were retested and came back negative, she contaminate them so that they actually were positive. So she could say, no, no, you're wrong, I was right the first time. Um, and basically what happened was that she is now, uh, she's been indicted last September for 27 counts of fabricating evidence uh, and obstruction of justice. Um, she faces a possible 20 years in prison. Um, in the August of last year, the lab was closed. Um, in the September, the State Health Commissioner resigned. Um, the former supervisor, uh, he was dismissed. The state pros- one of the state prosecutors who'd been in a close relationship with her, uh, he's resigned uh, for receiving unauthorised correspondence. Um, now, 34,000 criminal cases that her evidence was used in have to be reviewed. 285 prisoners have already been released. Um, half of whom have been re-arrested because they were career criminals and they've just gone and done something else. Um, The governor has set aside $30 million this year just to cover the cost of it. And Dukan also faces a number of civil suits from criminals who've been been put inside on her evidence. So she's not only going to get 20 years, she's going to get sued to hell. Now, this is, you know, you you think to yourself, why does she do this? What's the motive? First of all, how could she get away with it? Well, how could she get away with it? Because this is not particularly unusual um, in forensic science in America. Uh, this is the third lab to have closed in the last three years. The St. Paul lab was closed for contaminating evidence. Uh, the, Bo- the Detroit lab was closed um, in 2009, um, uh, 2008, for contaminating DNA evidence. Um, Houston, uh, a TV report, uh, led to charges of mishandling DNA evidence, and they found fabrication, and that's been closed. The point is that there are huge pressures on these people because of the workload, they're underfunded. Dukan developed these very close relationships with people who expected her to generate vast amounts of samples. They expected her to come up with positive Results. Uh, the prosecutors, the district attorneys, they called her, her super, their superwoman. Uh, one of the district attorneys called herself an Annie Dukan hog because she wanted to always get, get Annie Dukan's work. Um, and this raises this, this question of the status of forensic evidence, um, the sorts of pressures that people are put under in the lab. The lab is in no way separate from the world. It's very much enmeshed with the world. Annie Dukan, her motives, she said to investigators that she wanted to be a good employee. Um, whether, whether that actually is being a good employee or not, but she certainly thrived on the reputation that she developed. But she was also not necessarily a bad person. She was trying to do good in a funny sort of way because she was in the middle of a number of different moral obligations, moral obligations to the prosecutors who needed her, moral obligations to the lab who needed the work done. Uh, there was a certain amount of self-aggrandizement. She was a bit of uh, sort of a fabulist in, in many ways. But she now seems to be completely bemused, and the case is going on, and it looks like she's going to be in serious trouble. But it's cast a huge amount of doubt on the status of forensic science in America. Um, And I just sort of leave you with this rather disturbing version of real-life CSI. Thank you, Greg. (laughs) Um, 
I guess that's the opposite of what I started out by saying, the science escaping into the outside world. This is an example of the outside world very clearly coming in and influencing science, which itself is extremely interesting. Um, there's, there's pressures on both, in both directions, and that's a rather interesting contra story, I think. Great, thank you. Um, now, I think, if I've got the sequence right this time, um, I think Richard is up next, and I think he'd like to go and uh, speak to upright microphone rather than the signature microphone. Great. Well, thanks, Nick, and it's a, it's a pleasure to be a, a late conscript to the, to the panel. And I'm going to do something slightly different. Rather than tell a story, I'm going to talk about the role of stories in, in, in economic behaviour and in economics. Um, as Nick said, I'm was author of The Romantic Economist, and so I'm going to be looking at it from the perspective of romantic post-Kantian philosophy. And what I thought it would be helpful to do is if I talk briefly about the necessary role that narratives play in helping us cope, whether as scientists or in everyday life, with uncertainty and with complexity of the world. And second, what makes social science different from other sciences? Namely, that the world that social science scientists study is a pre-interpreted and an innovative world. Economists are telling stories about the behaviour of human beings whose behaviour is itself structured by by stories and often by new stories. Now, the Romantics, who are my special um, favourite, understood that you never have unmediated access to facts, that your beliefs cannot be simply reflect the world out there. Rather, if you're going to make sense of the chaos around you, you must supply an intellectual framework, a story. The poet Coleridge made this point beautifully when arguing with a naive empirical scientist that he knew who argued that he could analyse facts without having a, a, a theory or a story. Coleridge said, you must have a lantern in your hand to give light, otherwise all the materials in the world are useless, for you cannot find them, and if you, for you cannot find them, and if you could find them, you could not arrange them. The point is, you cannot do without stories or theories to help you understand the complex, multifaceted world in which you live, any more than you can do without a lamp to see in the dark. But the trouble with stories, or with lamps for that matter, is that the light they cast, the focus they bring, is limited and partial. And this means that if you only rely exclusively on one story, one theoretical framework, you'll inevitably keep stumbling on aspects of reality outside the area illuminated by the story you use. But before I explore a little bit more this danger of what I call narrative monocultures, of using one story further, let me mention two further features of the role of stories in social sciences. The problem of knowledge that a social scientist is attempting to solve is deeper than that faced by most natural scientists. All scientists are faced with a complex and multifaceted world that cannot be captured, I would argue, except with the help of stories and with models, and can never be captured fully by one story. But social scientists face two additional problems. First, they are interpreting a pre-interpreted world. For example, the behaviour that economists study is already partly constructed by the social narratives and economic theories that individual actors have internalised. This means that economists can't explain or predict market behaviour unless they have uh, learned to empathise with, the better to interpret, the various stories that influence the beliefs and therefore the actions of market participants. Secondly, I would argue that social scientists share with biologists the fact that they are studying an indeterminate world in which constant novelty 
makes the future inherently uncertain. Just as chance mutations make biological systems unpredictable, so the human imagination, our capacity to innovate, makes the future social world uncertain. And in this uncertain world, we rely on imagination and on stories to make sense of the indeterminate choices we face to help construct that future. We cannot calculate the best course of action, as economists often assume, because the future is not yet out there as data to be computed. Rather, the future remains to be created by the choices that we and others will make and by the self-fulfilling stories that we and others will tell. Given the profound uncertainty we face, it is, as Jens Beckert has argued, the stories that we tell that help define the roles we play and give us our reasons for action. Now, this has huge implications for the role of social scientists. It suggests, I would argue, that if we want to spot emerging patterns and make sense of unpredictable worlds, we need to analyse the narratives that market players use to structure their behaviour. And this is something that David Tuckett, who I see just in front of me here in the audience, has done to great effect in his book, Minding the Markets. So to conclude, I want to give you just two examples from the financial world of the damage done by ignoring the crucial role played by stories in economics as a science and in economic behaviour. Prior to the recent crisis, the financial world was under the spell of the efficient markets hypothesis story, that prices reflect all available information. And almost all banks were using Gaussian distribution-derived value-at-risk models that assumed incorrectly that uncertainty could be turned into measurable risk. But what made these economic stories so dangerous was not so much that many market participants forgot their weaknesses as that they forgot how much the stories we internalise structure the very data and evidence that we see. Bankers, it turns out, had so internalised had so internalised the one perspective implied by their dominant economic story that they were simply not predisposed to see the asset price bubbles emerging because their conceptual or narrative framework had no place for them. Secondly, this narrative monoculture caused more than a shared blind spot. It also led to extraordinarily high correlations in behaviour. One of the many factors left out of risk models in the run-up to the crisis was the destabilising rise in correlations caused by the rapid internalisation of the same new era risk models by most banks, often in the name of best practice. With everyone acting the same way, prices reacted accordingly, reconfirming the narrative, and a bubble, bubble became inevitable. Well, I think I'll stop there, but just with one final observation, that the antidote to such narrative monocultures is not, I would argue, to try and avoid narratives, to avoid stories. We cannot do without stories. That's how we make sense of our uncertain and complex world. The antidote to the danger of relying on one story is, I would argue, as the romantic economist, the imagination. It's the imaginative switching between different narratives it's the imaginative receptiveness to anomalies that challenge a preferred narrative. Thanks. Richard, thank you very much. Um, just as a remark in passing, you talked about the problem that social scientists face because they're trying to explain to people who have their own explanations of how the world works and things are counterintuitive as far as they're concerned. 
That's exactly the same story that science educators keep telling about trying to teach kids science because they have their own concepts of how the world works, which are sort of intuitive, um, natural ideas, and you have to throw them out or somehow destroy them in order to put on, uh, as it were, the correct scientific interpretation of events. I don't think social scientists do quite that, but obviously it's the same problem, that how do you address people who think quite naturally something is true when it just doesn't happen to be? It's because they've got a different, naive story. Um, okay, well, we'll stick with matters um, economic because we'll go to Africa now, who will tell us another economic story, I think. I'm going to stand too. Um, I hope storytelling will disappear because I'll be out of a job. Um, you know, novelist's challenge is to make you feel like you're there. So, what I've decided to do is that. So, I want to invite you to be a character in a story for the next few minutes. Your setting is 1986, and your mobile phone, just to set the context, is the size of a brick. It costs £3,000. You're standing on the trading floor of an investment bank in the city, and it's the early days of a bull market that's going to go on for 14 years. You're trading a derivative product. It's a complex hybrid of debt and equity. All the business that you do is over the counter, so there's no official price. Now, you're a smart graduate, but you're not a mathematician, and neither is anybody else around you. So how do you decide what these hybrids are worth. The technology you have at your disposal is a Reuters screen, a bunch of phones, a bond calculator, and very rare access to a Black and Scholes option model. But all combined, these things are a blunt instrument. There's no mathematical model in existence at the moment that can capture what you intuitively know, which is that these things are very cheap. The problem is how to capture it. Each day you trade in live markets across countries, across currencies, across bond markets, across equity markets. You rely on tangible and intangible data to make up a price. So historical performance, liquidity, the invisible footprint of buyers and sellers in the market, uh, the size of your hangover, and your experience. You capture value by taking positions and by hedging your risk. But you need time to find out if you're going to be right. And your method is crude. You know this. Your hedge book is a physical ring binder with sheaves of paper. It looks like a ledger from a, a, a sweet shop. But you're making a ton of money. You're also leaving a lot on the table because you haven't got the mathematical tools. Fast forward a year, and it's 1987. On the 19th of October, the Dow Jones drops 22% in a single day. You learn straight away you see things that are not supposed to happen. Crazy prices, complete illiquidity, and fear all around you. You learn that in times of crisis, you can throw away the rule book. And you start to understand what Newton said in 1720 when he dropped a packet in the South Sea bubble. I can calculate the motion of heavenly bodies, but not the madness of people. You think that your first crash is like losing your virginity. Life will never be the same again in ways that you can't expect. In fact, what you've just learned is what soldiers learn when they don't get killed. Survival. 1987 turns out to be a blip. The bull market roars on. You're starting to realize that markets are really all about stories, whether it's Japanese real estate, an emerging economy, an IPO, a stock chart, a yield curve. You can run all the numbers that you like, but in the end, it's a leap of faith. And what you decide to do as a trader or an investor depends on what you decide to believe. By 1991, you're out in Docklands, and to set the scene, you've started to use email, but you're not browsing. There's no World Wide Web. 
And there's a new species on the trading floor. These are the maths and the physics postdocs who've been lured out of universities with large checks. You call them the quants. These are the quantitative analysts who are going to build the theoretical model that you've always wanted. But when you all sit down in a meeting room, there's a problem in communication. The quants have spent their lives in a theoretical bubble. They've never been on a trading floor. They've never been in business. They've never seen a market crash. They've never had the same experience as you. You're worried about variables. You're worried about assumptions, about correlations. You're worried about everything that's not in the model. It's all really elegant, but experience has taught you that the biggest risk factor in any situation is likely to be human. Trading is an art and a science. There's no certainty. But if you keep asking these kind of questions, you'll be misheard as a skeptic. Or worse, you'll be considered to be too stupid to handle the maths. You're not the only one that's anxious at this point. Already in 1992, the President of the Federal Reserve warns that derivatives must be understood by top management as well as by traders and rocket scientists. I hope this sounds like a warning, because it is. You get your model, and in the years that follow, you make a fortune for the bank and for yourself. Mostly out of proprietary trading now, because that's what management want, and they keep cranking up your risk limits. It's a period of amazing creativity and innovation. Mathematical models pave the way for bigger trades, new instruments, and much greater layers of complexity. Hedge funds blossom like weeds. Financial engineering is the big story. It's become an article of faith. From now on, your world is divided into the bankers and the geeks. They don't speak the same language, and they don't think the same way. But for the moment, the bankers are in charge. So they have to trust the geeks if they want the glittering returns. This cultural revolution won't be discussed in the public domain until years later when everything starts to go wrong. In the meantime, there's a transformation in attitudes towards risk and towards customers. Specialization and big profits breed arrogance and contempt. People start believing that they're in possession of a superior truth. Customers become the pretty stupid people who understand nothing, which is how one bank in London refers to their institutional clients. These are the fund managers, the corporate treasurers, the insurance companies who buy instruments that they can't or don't or won't understand because they promise spectacular returns. Greed, like love, is a kind of madness. makes us deaf to warnings. Fast forward to 1998. You're sitting in front of the screen when the shock news breaks that the smartest guys in the room have blown up. Long-term capital management, the king of hedge funds, with over $100 billion of assets and two Nobel Prize winners in economics amongst the partners. Their strategy, to quote one of the partners, was relative value convergence trading, which means you identify cheap assets and try to hedge as many of the systematic risks, risk factors that are associated, so that all you're left with is the pure cheapness itself. Now, there's nothing unusual about that, but the important words here are risk factor, the definition of what they might be. On August the 17th, Russia devalues the ruble and defaults on its debt. This is your black swan. No one is expecting this to happen. This triggers instant panic across the sector, the financial sector, and a stampede for the exit. Four days later, long-term capital dropped 550 million in a <coughs> single day. There's a scramble to liquidate all sorts of positions. Time is going to vindicate long-term strategy, but for now there's no time because all that matters is the story that people believe, and that is that long-term is going down. 
It wasn't the loss of Russia. In fact, it wasn't the loss of the exposure to Russia. It was the fact that everybody needed to unwind their positions and wanted liquidity. This is not something that you can put on a model. On September 21st, long-term drops another 551 million in a single day. The Fed coordinates a bailout. A $4.6 billion hit is taken. 1.9 of that is the partner's own money. These guys really believed. Ten years on in 2008, long-term capital will look like an early warning signal and the best lesson never learned by the Fed or by Wall Street or by any of the rest of us. By then, the global financial crisis has unfolded in a toxic convergence of plot lines, indolence, incompetence, greed, but to be more specific, financial engineering, catastrophic management failure, negligent government, short-term compensation culture, lax regulation, and a zombie electorate out shopping. By 2009, you're out of a job. The bank has shut down its prop business. So what story do you tell when it's all over? Like all stories, that depends on your point of view and your motive. If you're the CEO of Morgan Stanley, you visit Wharton and tell students a story about leading a big bank out of a crisis and telling the Fed, quote, to get fucked. If you're an ex-partner of long-term capital, you go back to MIT and tell the students that you're disturbed by soundbites about greed and hubris, about an anti-intellectualism that suggests rational economic thinking and models just don't make sense. If you're a professor of financial engineering at Columbia, you write a Hippocratic Oath for modelers. And you write an article in the Journal of Derivatives to confirm that there is no truly reliable science beneath financial engineering. Variables such as volatility and liquidity are crude proxies for complex human behaviors. Models are only reliable as long as the sea is calm. When crowds panic, anything can happen. The reason the stories we tell are important is because they're our legacy to the next generation. They'll shape history what will be remembered, and what we learn. But they also influence and inform policy and decisions about regulation, risk management, business models, corporate governance, and whether or not you buy that house. So what happens when you tell a story is a shift in perspective. Your altered state is what your listeners now believe and what they then go on to do. Thank you. Thank you, Alfred. Okay, well, to finish with, we're going to turn to Roger at the end, and he's going to move away from economics, I hope. I don't know, I mustn't say I hope, that's a science speaking. <laughs> move away from economics and deal with something slightly different. Probably we like to yes, thank on. you. I'm going to talk about my own, um, the story from my own recent experience, uh, it's, and it's to do with medicine, that's what I do. First, before I start, how many people are doctors here, or nurses, or something? Okay, okay, a minority presence. To say. Um, so I'm going to give you a bit of background about where I'm coming from and the kind of thing that I do and then tell you a story about something that happened a few months ago that I think illustrates some of these issues about where, where there is a clash between boundaries, between borders. So my background is medical. I trained as a surgeon, first of all. I was a GP for a long, long time and then I became an academic. So I got a sort of insider view of... Of, of medicine and diseases. And, and as doctors, we tend to, to sort of think of, um, think of that in two ways. We think about diseases, you know, heart attacks or strokes or whatever. And then, of course, we deal with people who have them, where it's always different. And um, one of the things I do at the moment is to, is to use simulation, kind of little plays, really, as a way of 
of showing to people who would not go into a doctor's surgery or an operating theatre what goes on inside. So we develop um, pretty realistic representations of what goes on in surgery or whatever, using sometimes actors, using doctors of various kinds to present that world. We've been doing this in a number of science fairs, science museum, the natural history museum, that sort of thing. And when people come to these events, they, um, they come expecting to see something to do with medicine because that's what it's advertised as. One of the ones that's been quite successful is one about a heart attack. And what happens there is that somebody, uh, a professional actor, appears to have a heart attack and then they're scooped up by the ambulance and then they go into a place in, in, in public view uh, where they have a, a procedure where somebody feeds a wiggly wire up through their groin into their heart and stretches up a blockage and it gets better and then they go home and it's fine. And so you, as a member of the audience, you, well, it might be you in the audience here and it's happening on the stage. And it's pretty realistic, but you know, of course, that it's not really happening. So we've been doing a number of these, and, and last year we submitted to a, uh, a conference a proposal to do this at the conference. It's a conference of science educators, um, and its, its theme that year was impact. And the conference organisers said, yeah, we really like this idea uh, of doing a heart attack scenario, but I tell you what, the theme is impact. So to heighten the impact, we'd like you... Um, to, to fly it below the radar. We'll, we'll have it there, but we won't put it in the programme, and then you'll just do it um, and see what happens. <laughs> so um, the conference was at the, in the basement of a large building, and on the ground floor we set up our simulation uh, operating theatre where the patient would go to have their procedure and get better and go home. But the first part of the story took place at the end of the plenary session like this at the... In the morning of the second of two days. And at the end of a discussion rather like this, unannounced uh, organisers said, well, somebody's going to come up on stage and just make a brief announcement. And so a man went up on the stage and said, hello, I'm from Imperial College, and I'd just like to tell you about it. <laughs> and um, collapsed on the floor. Uh, and there was a sort of quite a few seconds, really, I guess, when people didn't really know what was going on. Uh, then people were starting to get out their mobile phones, uh, and then the, the uh, paramedics who were stationed at the back of the audience came very rapidly down to the, to the stage, and I, I stepped up on stage and said, look, don't worry, um, here's who I am, and this isn't a real heart attack, this is a, um, this is a simulation, and if you'd like to see what happens next, then please do come and join us upstairs, and we'll see the rest of the story. Um, in my naivety, I assumed that lots of people would want to do that, and indeed many of them did. And so I went up with my colleagues to the ground floor and carried on doing what we'd done many times before, which was to show the wiggly wire and the patient getting better and things. Um, fairly soon afterwards, however, I discovered that actually something completely different had been going on in the lecture theatre where that had first happened and in the coffee bar outside which was that there had been an eruption of, um, of people tweeting and talking to one another and, um, and, and saying all sorts of things about the impact that this had had on them so there's no question that there was impact um, but the impact wasn't at all what I was expecting um, and the, the response of the, of the audience was, was, was sharply polarised a lot of people said, 
This is completely unacceptable. I cannot believe that you could do such a thing. We felt duped, we felt betrayed, we felt that this was a cynical manipulation of our emotions. And I don't know how you can consider yourself to be a serious academic and do something like this. Other people said, this is the most engaging, the most vivid, the most extraordinarily powerful uh, public engagement event I have ever been to. And for the first time, I realised what it feels like when somebody has a heart attack in front of you. Um, And it was about 50-50. And and in the the days and weeks that followed, we tried to build up a picture, really, of, of what had happened, because clearly this was not a neutral experience for anybody, really. Um, it was very, very potent. And I think piecing it together afterwards, several things had happened. The first one was that, that for the first time in our experience, we had set out, we had made something happen without a surrounding frame, where for the people in the audience, there was no reason to believe that what appeared to be a heart attack wasn't a heart attack. And then, and that has a very powerful emotional, packs an emotional punch. If somebody somebody in front of you seems to collapse. That's different from when you're looking at myocardial infarction, heart attacks, as a medical condition. If it's a person with a story and you think they're dying in front of you, then, of course, you have mixed feelings and it's a very powerful experience and very many people don't know what to do. And it has a powerfully disruptive uh, effect, I think. And I think that was part of it. The next part was when people found that it wasn't real after all. And then they started to feel even more pissed off because they were angry at themselves and at the situation. And the third thing that happened, I think, was that many people didn't see the end of the story. They saw the first part when things went wrong, but they didn't see it being closed off when things went right. Um, Which is what happened for for those people who saw the, the, the rest of the simulation. But it's been making me think a lot about what happens when something that you normally expect to happen somewhere else, somewhere safe, where you don't personally have to take responsibility for doing anything about it, you call the ambulance and somebody gets taken off to hospital and they're dealt with there. Or something which is clearly a representation of a medical condition, but it's not a real one, so you don't have any responsibility to fix it rather as if you're seeing somebody have a stroke on, on the stage and it's part of the play. But I think this one was a story, it was a, it was a, a, a clash of stories. It wasn't quite clear what the story was and it wasn't clear what the frame was. And I have no answers about this, but I, I, I put it to you as, a, as an example of where one way of looking at things comes into violent confrontation with another way of looking at things. And the the disquiet and the um, uncomfortableness that results. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Um, yes, boundaries, contexts. Um, well, we've all told little stories, um, and we now want to, as it were, throw it open for, for comment or discussion or questions or whatever other interactions you would like to have. Um, I'll use the usual chairman's stuff about please be brief with whatever it is you'd like to say. Um, please wait for one of these two roving, roving microphone persons to, to get to you. And would you also please perhaps tell us who you are uh, when you make your comment or ask your question or whatever. A lot of different things we've talked about. It'll be interesting 
to hear what sort of things people react to, what they're most interested in. So if, if anybody would like to start the ball rolling, would they, would they sort of identify themselves in the usual fashion with their old raised hand? What? Not a single raised hand? There's a raised hand. Thank goodness for one raised hand. Get things going. Thank you very much, sir. Um, hi, good evening. My name is uh, William Wong. I, I do have a connection with Imperial uh, as a business school alumnus and a member of the, on the alumni advisory board, uh, but also a former visiting fellow here, so I have t- double connections. Um, just looking at your backgrounds and specialisms, I'm just thinking how I could ask a, perhaps an intelligent question where science do meet with business and economics and politics. And the first thing that comes to my mind is the the stories around climate change. Now, it may not be your background. I just wonder what you might have um, to say about it. Because there are people, there are, there are campaign groups and camps trying to kill off any, any urgency on that issue. And of course, it's hugely polarized. And there are lots and lots of people's uh, pressure groups alike. And some countries, uh, particularly within the EU, uh, basically consider it is a very, very hard task to balance the realities of economic growth or the complete lack of it in the European Union at the moment and also the timescales we're facing. And uh, if you just look at the UK, we constitute about 2% of the global carbon emissions. It's very hard to sell the story to the public that you have to make huge sacrifices, but in the larger scale of things, it's probably irrelevant if the United States, if China and so on just refuse to cooperate. The continuing horse trading at every single round corp, as you can see. I just wonder what, what you might have to say about that in terms of storytelling and the, and the stories we play out in our heads and also through the media. Thanks. Thank you for a nice, simple start. Um, <laughs> uh, where do we start with this one? Who'd like to say um, something? Yeah, I was, I, I was, as you were speaking there, I was thinking one of the, the key things that the anti-climate change uh, camp have going for them is they've told a story that really catches people's imaginations because they've used this scientific fraud thing, the idea that this data was fabricated. One of the things about the Dukan case and all the other scientific fraud cases that come up is that people find it so shocking that science is supposed to be so pure, it's supposed to be so objective. So when you do occasionally get scientific fraud, it immediately really rings home to people. And, and I think this business with these East Anglian emails and the, the this is the thing that everyone that you speak to that, that has this problem with climate change, they always cite that. Oh, yeah, but they falsified the data. Um, and it, so somehow the anti-group have hooked on a particular narrative that really bites home because people are really offended by scientific fraud. I mean, as the, the, the business with Dukan in America, I mean, a CSI nation is now completely, deeply offended that, that CSI isn't true. Um, and and uh, they, it's a bit like you. They feel duped. They feel completely ripped off. And I think that narrative is really what's working against climate change because they've got one little thing that seems to make the whole thing look fraudulent. Yeah, but that, that came quite late in the day. And in a sense, that's simply reinforcing the prejudices of those who, who, who want to oppose it. So... It's the stories about. It's not just that story. It's a whole series of stories. It seems to be that. Um, well, yeah. Anyone else like to say something? I, I, I might. I'm, I might pick up this as, as very much the climate change believer. But I, I do think there are 
um, interesting issues raised, raised by your question. The, the one thing is that there's, a, I think, a rhetorical battle between different stories going on that are equally true. One is the story about climate change, which let's assume for the moment is, is, is true. And another is that there are a lot of poor people in the world today who desperately need help and for, and for whom anything that might um, uh, affect growth now would be disadvantaged. These two stories may, let's, let's, let's uh, accept for a second, may be equally true. And they are, um, um, they are incompatible to some extent. And so what you have, I think, often is a kind of rhetorical battle between different partial stories about different aspects of the world at the same time. The other thing I think is that there is, there is a certain sense in which there's a, a reasonable scepticism on the part of the non-scientific public. Um, there's a lovely phrase that comes in a book about English literature from a chap called M.H. Abrams who, who, um, who looks at the word fact. Facts. He said, the thing about facts is it comes from the Latin word factor, which means things made, not found. In other words, to some extent, facts are a, are a construct of the theories we use and the models we, 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 we use. It isn't as though there are facts out there which objectively speak. Um, and I think at some intuitive level, people understand that. The other thing I think at, at a intuitive level they understand is that um, things that we, that, that we innovate all the time and things turn up. And my guess is that the main reason people aren't entirely convinced by the climate change story isn't because they don't believe it's happening, but because they think something will turn up. We will innovate, as we've always done before, and find some solution that will mean that we don't need to do all these things, uncomfortable things, that we're being told we need to do. Now, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think that's probably true. I think it's probably too serious for that. But I think that's perhaps what's behind people's scepticism about the story, quite in addition to the, the issues that you raised, which I'm sure are there as well. Thank you. Afro, did you want to say something? Yeah, I, I mean, it's an anecdote, but it's interesting because the stories we tell in terms of the impact on, on a next generation, something as I rapidly age, I'm always very aware of. My son, who's 14, turned around the other day and uh, I said, how was geography? And he said, oh, climate change, you know. And I said, oh, so it was... Uh, that's a fairly typical reaction on any subject when I ask it. But um, I said, so were you having a debate about, you know, pros and cons or the issue of... Uh, he said, Mom, it's all true. It's not a debate, it's a fact. I think it's interesting that the story at that level is obviously being taught as part of a curriculum <coughs> to kids now who accept it as an article of faith. The question remains whether or not that's going to change their behaviour. Yeah, interesting. Um, we have another query here, please. Um, my name is Kelly Swain, and I'm a poet whose work focuses in science, and I've just um, begun teaching part-time at Imperial in Medical Humanities. And um, something Greg said uh, kind of struck me that I think might bring up a question that kind of almost comes before what we're discussing, but um, he said that science is sort of supposed to be pure, and people, the public, find it shocking um, when it sort of proves not to be or is proven not to be. And I wonder if this relates to Roger's story in a way that um, people were shocked because as a surgeon, your example was sort of self-evidently proved to be impure or false or acting and this sort of crossover was, was not allowed. But I wonder if that actually relates to the 
over the past few hundred years as a recent position of the sciences as becoming so specialized and becoming so kind of high and mighty, dare I say, and, and, and very um, demanding and intellectual and, and perhaps posi- positioning themselves above the public in a way. So we have this sort of um, institution or many institutions to look up to that are meant to be pure but perhaps they've positioned themselves in that purity as a protection. So that may relate to things, I hope. Okay, thank you. Um, science purity. It strikes me that we've just had a Pope resigning, um, and I wonder whether there are parallels between these high, <laughs> abstract places that we're supposed to worship, um, science and religion. But anyway, Greg, perhaps who are going to go first? I think one of, one of the, the things about science that we've heard several people talk about is that it is seen to be, the natural science is particularly objective and dispassionate and all, all the rest of it. And, and I think one of the unhelpful things about that is that people tend to think that the people who do it will also be detached and, 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 and dispassionate. But, but actually trying to, trying to divide or separate the science from the people who do it is a nonsense, I think, anyway. And I think we, we see some very... Um, extreme examples of, of people at the edge um, whose behaviour is aberrant or, or unacceptable or whatever. But always there is this, there is this interfusion between, the, between people and, 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 and science and things. And that's particularly the case in medicine where um, it's, often a, it's often a strugglesome thing to try and separate that um, view of, of disease and injury and treatment and things in the in a sort of abstract, canonical way, from what it's actually actually like with an individual person, where you're not only dealing with one individual person, you're dealing with two individual people because it's all about the relationship between you and them. And and this idea that you can somehow separate those things completely and keep them in different compartments, I think is very dangerous. And I think that, that the way science is seen is that any any anything, any cracks that appear in that division are seen as, as a very bad thing or betrayal of principle or whatever rather than just a normal part of human behaviour where scientists are actually people and they do the things that everybody else does. Sure. Well, I, just, I think you're right. I think there's a... In a way, it's not that people actually think that science is completely objective. It's almost as if science somehow symbolises an ideal of objectivity. It's what we like it to be. Um, but I'm with you. I, I think it can be very damaging because when you, you, you deal with postgraduate scientists and you're, you're, you're talking to them about their research and the different pressures that they're under uh, and you find the, the moral pressure that, that all sorts of competitive environments create, certainly you know, modern science is highly competitive for jobs, for funding, for all sorts of things, and you're, you're pulled this way and that way by different obligations. And, and I think there's a real danger in... Many people in the sciences are frightened to admit that because somehow it's giving ground to the enemy. It, it's sort of giving up on the ideal of objectivity, and so I they're sort of resistant to, to accepting it, but actually that resistance is quite damaging. But in a sense it goes back to the question about climate change because all that East Anglia stuff kind of shook people's confidence in, 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 in the science. Mm. 
but it was actually the people. I mean, you know, yeah. it, 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 it spilled yeah. over yeah. To, some, to somewhere where it shouldn't really be threatening the arguments yeah. around climate change, but it, 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 it destroyed people's confidence mm. in, in the science, I think, in a very unhelpful way. Well, I, think, I think the scientific community has been extraordinarily successful over the last hundred years in creating this image of itself as a peculiarly objective, specialised cadre of people who are different from the rest of us. And I think they've been perhaps a little too successful uh, in the last 50-odd years. Anyway, um, moving on, George, you, go to you first, George, and then perhaps... Yeah, George Gaskell, I'm torn between two questions. One would follow the line of Karl Popper, who more or less identifies methodology as the crucial element within science. Uh, the stories surrounding the methods are probably neither here nor there because that might be imagination. And so the question would have been, do we have stories about methods? But can I ask a different question? Which, <laughs> which would be, if science is all about storytelling, how far does this take us down the route of the postmodern critique of science that it is just one set of stories about the world and that there are a variety of other um, interpretations, there are a variety of other approaches, storytellers, etc. Uh, and the truth claims for science are no stronger than the truth claims attached to any other version of events. Postmodernism, don't you just love it? Um, <laughs> anybody want to comment on that? Like a man, you might not have talked. Well, yeah. Um, I think science is about stories, and there is a rhetorical element to science. I mean, even using data is, in a sense, a rhetorical trick, if you want to put it that way, or it's a rhetorical method. Um, that doesn't mean you need to go to the postmodern extreme or Nietzschean extreme of thinking physics just is interpretation and is nothing else. Um, I would actually like to use, um, of all people, um, Wordsworth to make this point. He has a lovely phrase about how we react with the world, which is that we half create the world. And I think scientists, in a sense, are doing it exactly that, but perhaps they're maybe three, they're one quarter create, creating the world. And then the, the, In other words, it's an interaction between the theories that we use to look at the world, and if you like, we impose on the world, and the facts that are, the, the, the world are out there. Um, that, uh, and, and, and our construct is a combination of, our, of, our, of the theoretical framework we use and the world out there. Um, and uh, I, I think scientists can't get away from that. They can be much more rigorous than poets need to be or should be, but they can't get away from the fact that they... Um, they I will read one very tiny little uh, 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 thing from Iris Murdoch, um, who um, uh, was writing a book about Sarch, who is probably even worse than postmodernists from a scientific perspective. But she makes this lovely phrase, which I think does sum up what I think is the scientific challenge, if you want to put it that way. What does exist is brute and nameless. It escapes from the scheme of relations in which we imagine it to be rigidly enclosed. It escapes from language and science. It is more than and other than our descriptions of it. And for me, that's the way the world really is. And science is a way of trying to, to get an angle on that amorphous, shapeless 
uh, world out there, and it's a very effective way of doing that, but it's always a, a construct. And I don't know if that makes any sense to you real scientists. <laughs> yeah. Well, as a non-scientist and therefore a real person, um, <laughs> I think there's a huge issue about language here. I think it's a really... I mean, if the world presents to us in terms of stories and if we pass on knowledge in terms of stories, we use a language, whether it's mathematical, whether it's calculus, or whether it's natural language. And there's a huge issue here about what people believe it's possible to communicate. And one of the huge problems are closed worlds. I mean, whether it's baseball or whether it's uh, quantum mechanics you're using a certain kind of language that will, by definition, exclude. Um, a couple of years ago, the, the um, uh, Royal Science, uh, there was a debate with John Banville, the Irish novelist, who's written lots of books featuring scientists, and there was a physicist in the audience who said, I just don't understand how you think that you can write about physics if you're not a physicist. And I think that that, it's not a question of right or wrong, I think that language is used as, as a way of ownership and also as a huge barrier to, to communication. Yes, true. Another question. You have one there, please. Yes. Hello, uh, I'm Michelle. Uh, you've nearly um, almost kind of touched on it there. I was interested in what um, you were saying about uh, science often being reduced to eureka moments when we try and communicate them to the public because I feel like this gives people kind of, in our enthusiasm to get the public interested, we communicate just these sexy eureka moment stories and then people develop unnatural expectations and I think that ties into, I mean most frequently the science stories you see in the newspaper are just scientists have discovered a gene responsible for cancer and this could bring a cure in three years and so when you are a scientist and someone asks you what you do, if you can't reduce it to a sound bite, people often don't kind of see the value in it. Um, and I feel like if people had a, an a better appreciation for the longer-term strategy and all the hard and boring work that goes into it, they might even be more willing to commit to another thing you touched on, which is, say, the, the sacrifices you have to make for things like climate change. Um, so I guess, I guess that all leads towards the question is, do you think there are stories we can tell about science or even ways, different ways we can communicate about science that would help people appreciate the longer story and the, the elegance in that rather than just going, oh, I had a great day in the lab today, cured breast cancer, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're right. I think you're right to identify that in a way even new stories are just you, just a one long set of eureka moments. That's, that's the sort of, everybody reaches for that particular trope because it's the obvious one to make it easy for people to uh, grab hold of and, and people now expect it, so it's, it's, the public expects to be told about it in this way, so the whole thing is a self-perpetuating um, cycle. Um, it is interesting, the question of whether or not you could tell people more about, as it were, the process, not in a sort of boring methodological way, which we could all do from a textbook, but in a the, in the more human way. What is it, you know, went to the lab today, cured breast cancer. Well, that's the wrong story. So what, is the, what does happen in a laboratory? How do you tell such stories? And from my point of view, there are only two ways. You can either do it biographically. You can get a scientist to speak about their life. That's slightly problematic because most of them come at it with a whole series of assumptions about what they ought to be saying and how they ought to behave. So the autobiographies and even the biographies are sort of distorted in that sense, it seems to me. The other route is, of course, through fiction. And it seems to me that there's a huge trick missed. Um, 
I've looked a little bit at this, at, at how, fiction is how fiction does represent science, and the answer is that most of the time it doesn't. It's very hard to find any fictional representations of the process of doing science. There are some good examples, but most of the books I've looked at, novels where I've looked at, which seem to have some kind of science content in them, this method tends to be left out. So I think this, this issue of what it is to do science is completely missing from both the factual communication of science and also from the fictional communication of science. There's a big hole here, and um, there is actually a, an activity going on in Germany at the moment where they're trying to, as it were, get fiction writers and scientists together to communicate with each other to see whether there are good novelistic stories or screenplays that could come out of it. But it's a, it's a slow process, and the money for it has not yet arrived. Um, <laughs> Classic science. Classic science, yes. <laughs> um, But anybody else like to come on to Yeah, this? I mean, I mean it, it, this, it, it, I mean, I think it relates back to the previous question, because you seem to be asking, uh, sort of in answer to your question, are there stories that we can tell about science that tell the truth about science? Um, so in that sense, there is a, some stories about science are more representative of the way science is, and some of them are pure fictions. And I think that's the key to diffusing the postmodern threat, that just because you tell a narrative doesn't mean you're doing fiction. And it's almost as if over the last couple of hundred years... With the growth of science and its dream of objectivity, the arts have developed this dream of pure fiction. Uh, so now narrative is seen as fiction and theorising, theoria, is seen as pure objectivity. Well, actually, no, narrativity doesn't have to be fiction because just because you have to use narratives to say what happened today doesn't mean you're making up a story. And, and you, you very much... One of the dangers with the more extreme postmodernists. Rorty and, and people like that is that they, they tend to place all narratives as fictions on a level. And there are some narratives that are aiming at trying to get a clearer idea and some narratives that are just trying to make something up out of the air. And in between there's a whole range of different things. And I think what you're asking for is the sort of scientific narratives that don't just make things up if that makes any sense. <laughs> but having, um, Roger, having seen one of your training sessions, I was lucky enough to go on and see, you are dramatising science. I mean, that, that, that's a... Very, very much so, yes. Yeah. And, and, and in a sense, being selective, I was thinking about your, your question about the processes of science. I mean, the processes of science are very often not very interesting to the people who are doing them, let alone the people outside. But I guess the processes of actually writing a novel or, or creating a poem, or so, you, you know, those processes are not particularly interesting themselves either. You wouldn't want to sit in a novelist's um, writing room for five years watching her <laughs> create something. You'd rather read the book and maybe get a, a dramatised sense of what it is that's gone into it, but without seeing the actual thing itself for as long as it really takes. And I think the same applies... To science, if you're trying to get a window into some world that you don't normally live in, there has to be some process of mediation because if you just go and sit there, it's incredibly boring most of the time. And, 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 and there's some sort of middle point between that ordinary sort of quotidian just, just being there and nothing happens forever and the eureka moments. And somewhere there needs to be some kind of focusing of that everyday stuff that gives you an idea of what's led up to the eureka moment or the novel or the poem or the sculpture or whatever, but doesn't require you to be there for all of it, and that's, a, that's where I think the storytelling comes in, is in shaping that. I just want to make two, two comments. First of all, I think narrative is very important to keep narrative separate from fiction, because fiction has this sense of fantasy, of falsehood often, 
It's a, yeah. and, and whereas narrative, I think, doesn't have that sense. And I think that's it's therefore a much better, more neutral word to use in this, this case. And to come back to your question about science, I think one of the things, presumably, is that there's a difference between the incremental scientific discovery, which is what most scientific discoveries are, which is a huge amount of very painstaking work with, with, with data and with methods, etc., etc. And, and um, my father was a biochemist, and I, I know from, from, from talking to him that this, you know, much of it is very boring and extremely hard work and not eureka moments. But I think there are these eureka moments, and when, when there are these very radical new conceptual breakthroughs, um, uh, Wordsworth famously spoke about Newton as voyaging through strange seas of thought alone. And I think there is a sense in which really radical new paradigm-shifting sh- discoveries are an exercise of imagination. And interestingly, Einstein very much told his own story as exactly that kind of, Im- when he came up with the theory of relativity, as that kind of, of, of imaginative uh, eureka breakthrough moment. So I think there is an element of it, but it's, the, it's in the very rare cases where we get a complete conceptual shift that it's perhaps a, a, eureka, a genuine eureka moment as opposed to most ordinary science within a paradigm which is just a lot of very hard work and hopefully extremely objective storytelling. Richard, thank you. There was somebody was going to ask one of the guests. Over there, please. Could you raise the hand and we'll get the mic? Uh, hi, my name's Scott, and I, I teach at Imperial as well in the city lit around the corner from here. Um, I was just wondering about the, the monster of postmodernism and the, the, uh, the, also the monster of the novelist sitting at his or her desk doing nothing particularly interesting. Uh, it made me wonder whether when we tell stories is when we don't understand the methods that lead to these moments that are genuinely interesting. I mean, the stories just are for coping with the boredom of what we do. Would you say there's anything in that? Speaking of the boredom of my work, (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I I think that telling stories, the reason why people write or the reason why you write fiction is it's a way of thinking aloud on the page. Um, You're heading in a certain direction. And in that sense, I think... Um, what you're moving towards is you're moving towards what Brunner, we were talking about earlier, would call narrative truth. The problem with, the, with, with writing fiction, or the issue with writing fiction, is you have to deliver something that will be satisfying. And that brings you back to the idea of structure, which is why when you're teaching creative writing to, to science students, it's very interesting because there is this move towards rigor. If you want to satisfy narrative truth. It means you have, broadly speaking, a beginning, middle, end. And like Roger was saying, that, which is really interesting in the experiment that you did, the frustration of people who didn't see the end of the story. It's like going to the movie where, like Limbo, you're left hanging. Um, that is very distressing for people. And related to that, it's very interesting to see your medical students, your surgeons, practicing surgeons, in a dramatization of the work they do every day, the effect on them, how they feel about their work, because they have been involved in a dramatization of what they do. And, and as, as doctors, of course, very much involved with narrative all, all the time. In, in fact, we're trained very much to, to encourage people to, to tell their stories. You know, we talk about taking history. We get the story from each person, person we deal with. And in a sense, we're, we're, trying, to, um, we're trying to balance... A, a, a dramatised and sometimes um, rather incoherent narrative from a patient and put it into a more 
formal setting where it can be used, where it can be communicated to other people for other purposes. And so it's, it's really all about um, dealing with narrative, but trying to mould it so that for particular purposes. Um, and so the medical students' effort came to a session we did with medical students who were sort of acting out various aspects of their practice. And I think, I think this whole business of narrative is something that we do much more than we're aware of in the sciences and the medical... You know, obviously, as a novelist, you're very much more aware of it because of what you do overtly. But I think we... Certainly, where I come from in, in the medical line of things, we're doing it all the time, but we just don't see it like that. And this distinction you were drawing between narrative and fiction, I think, is, is at the heart of it. There's a fascinating book uh, in economics called The Rhetoric of Economics by Deirdre McCloskey, who was a, a statistician um, before she became a woman and uh, an English literature <laughs> professor, um, which, is, which is a good story in itself. Um, uh, but she makes the point that if you look at the incredibly dry science of, 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 of standard economics, most of the words in it, uh, equilibrium, production factors, functions, all these things, they're, they're metaphors. And actually, there's an awful lot of really linguistic aspects and structuring of the science of economics that's, that's in there as part of how it works as a science. Mm. And I, so I, I absolutely agree with you. I, I think you know, science is inevitably linguistic yeah. in some sense and rhetorical. Yeah, it's all metaphors. Even theoretical physics is all metaphors. In fact, especially theoretical physics is mm. all metaphors. Yeah. In the middle up there, we've got at least two. One, a lady in the middle... And possibly a gentleman as well, and that would be, I think we could put Anne Walton. Sorry, didn't. <laughs> yeah, in, let's go, can we go with the one at the top first? Sorry. Yeah. Um, hi, my name is Joanne. I'm in the IR department here. Um, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about responsibility, since we've been talking a lot about creation this evening. Um, do social scientists or scientists have a responsibilities for the narratives we create? Um, you could think of a lot of. His historical examples of narratives that are being created that are powerful and actually very dangerous. For example, social Darwinism and eugenics. So, and in addition to that, is there should there be a way of holding uh, people who tell these narratives responsible? Responsibility. Could we? Could one person say something? We'll move on a bit now because we're getting near the end. Craig, do you want to say something? Um, <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Well, I, I, would, I would think if, if you are pushing a particular narrative, I mean, I suppose social Darwinism is, is, is a classic case, I mean, it's a particularly pernicious sort of narrative, and I, I would think you do have to take responsibility for it if you're pushing it, uh, in terms of um, taking responsibility for the ramifications of, of that narrative. It is not just a simple scientific narrative. It has huge moral implications for what we do with that narrative, and I suppose in that sense, just as the, the scientist who develops a technology into a particular use uh, is responsible for that technology. I mean, it's a bit like Oppenheimer claiming I was just doing research. I didn't know they were going to drop the bomb. Uh, you know, this distinction between pure research and technological application, and I suppose there is a, there is a, if you're going to come up with social Darwinism, you can't seriously think that it's going to be used for good. Uh, so, you, you know. it's Galileo. Yes, sir. Can we have, <laughs> can I have a, asking just around here, please, yes. And then we've got another one up there. Um, hi, my name is Martin West. I'm a craftsman filmmaker who ends up being an architect, urban designer. And to make that leap, I've used a lot of narrative in my time. Uh, I'm also an educator. I teach. 
and I was, my question, I was picking up on some key words, and it was the openness and closeness and the modeling and the engineering. And one of the tools I use is kind of system theory to teach young people about scientific inquiry that has a creative edge to it. And I can, in ten lines of code, teach an eight, nine-year-old boy how to form a circle without using pi. It's simple, right? And we've got a world at the moment, I'm trying to offer something positive, I think, within scientific inquiry in the arts, that we do have a very closed nature uh, in, in the Western world of scientific inquiry. So I'm trying to offer a legacy, other key words that I think you've picked up on. So there's a question that comes out of this at the end. In the new paradigm, if there's a new structure that's happened after the economic catastrophes that we've seen over the last 10 years, then is this something we could give to our youth, which actually is about more crafting of science, a kind of art-based approach to science, a much more open inquiry to science, that then might bring together... There's a separation, isn't there, between science and art at the moment. A lot of the questions are kind of flying around that. Is there a monist approach where science and maybe spirituality, maybe culture, maybe art do come together and the narrative and the science actually give something to young people to then do something more positive? Anyone want to put your on that? I'm not sure that it is really, but thank you. Those are any arts. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, I mean, I think at its best, science is, a, it, it, is a, it is artistic. I mean, you know, the, 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 these distinctions are very unhelpful. I think um, they've been around for a very long time and they don't do much, do they, except get in the way. And I, I think it's, um, if your starting off point is a territorial one of whether you consider yourself to be an artist or a scientist or something, then that's a real problem. I think that actually if the process is successful, it's imaginative, it's creative, and it does the things we're talking about, then I don't think it particularly matters what you call it. I think it's about whether you get somewhere you weren't before and, and, um, and, and think imaginatively, really. We are running out of time. One last, could take that one last question there, please? Um, land the raised hand just there, halfway up. Thank you. Um, and I consider myself a social scientist. Um, there's a rise of um, popular culture which seems to have increased the democratization of um, um, thinking in the sense that um, if you feel something, it's just as good as what anybody else feels and therefore we don't have any way of really arranging or coming to some kind of order about um, thinking and the role that it plays. It seems to have been shoved out by feeling. Um, how could <coughs> science tackle this? And is there a legacy for, for youth? Thank you, sir, for that. That's got to be our final question, our final point to address. I and mean, anybody here like to address it? Uh, well, I teach them all philosophy. <laughs> I, I, I spend most of the first month of the um, science undergraduates that I teach uh, first, most of the first month trying to convince them of the difference between an opinion and an argument uh, and this seems to be something that, that is just they're not, they're not coming to me with it they're coming out of school thinking that well it's all just opinion if it's not science it's just opinion can I put opinions in my essay yes if you can tell me why I should agree with you but, you know, so, so in that sense, that is critical thinking, and I think that needs to be taught more. And, and I think the word that you use, democratization, unfortunately, that, 
there is something inherent in the notion of democratization that seems to be a sort of a leveling of not just moral equality, moral value, but, but the idea that, that, well, opinions, if there is no knowledge, the threat of postmodernism, if there is no truth, then it's all opinions, and everyone's opinion is as valid. But this is just the same as saying that all narratives are fiction, so therefore they're all of equal value. It, it, you know, it's, it's the same messy problem, subjectivism. And, and just, because, just because science is a narrative doesn't mean there aren't good or bad reasons to believe in the narrative. A degree, a degree, and and, um, and I, I think one of the problems in the BBC or, or any of the, the broadcasters is, is the attempt to be even-handed between different narratives. And often that means that they're even-handed between narratives that have very good reasons to believe them and narratives that actually there are virtually no good reasons to believe them, but they're fair, they're fair to both stories. And that is a problem, I think, with the presentation of science. Thank you, Richard. We're going to have to finish there. Critical thinking is our last point. Then I would simply, somebody else said, how can you make science work in the curriculum? I would say technology. My big beef is Richard Seaston, engineering and technology, not science. But that's a different issue. So critical thinking and engineering in the syllabus, that's what we're going to bring in um, in the next. When Mr. Gove goes, we'll bring them in. We've slightly overrun. Thank you very much indeed for coming and listening to us all and for contributing. And thank you, too, to all the people who went at the front. Thank you very much.